Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Anderson. Today's episode features content from an educational program titled Contemporary Management of HIV 2021. During this podcast, Dr. Paul Sachs, Clinical Director with the Division of Infectious Diseases at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, discusses emerging paradigms in ART. For more information about Dr. Sachs and for a link to the full online educational program, including downloadable slides specific to today's podcast, please visit the link in the show notes for today's episode. Now, let's get started and hear what Dr. Sachs has to say about a patient case and various emerging paradigms in ART. This is a 22-year-old cis man found to be HIV positive on a fourth-generation uh, test as well as a confirmatory HIV test. His HIV testing was done at a local STI clinic where he was also diagnosed with rectal GC. He's immediately referred to your clinic for care as a normal physical exam, is on no medications, and you order the labs, CBC, comprehensive metabolic panel, hepatitis A, B, and C serologies, a CD4 cell count, a plasma, HIV RNA, HIV resistance genotype. He is willing to start treatment right away. So the question is, should you? And I think increasingly, we are all learning that the answer is probably yes. This systematic um, analysis was published in AIDS a few years ago. It looked at rapid art initiation and compared them with standard of care in four randomized clinical trials. And what you'll note is that the best outcomes, which are things like starting art right away, retention and care, viral suppression, are all favored. And the bad outcomes, like loss to follow-up and mortality, are actually uh, also reduced. So this is Good news. What is the caveat here? Well, most, or I should say, I should say, all of these studies were done in uh, resource-limited settings. It's not known whether they would apply to here in the United States. However, we have had some studies done here in the United States that are relevant for our patients, and this is one of the first to look at this. It actually uses historical controls. Um, in San Francisco, they started doing this before really any other city, and they basically said, let's start everyone right away. And then they compared it with three different time periods. One was a time period of universal art guidelines. I mean, two different art periods, two, two different prior art periods. And one was a CD4-guided art. And what you'll note on the figure is that the time to viral suppression is much faster for the immediate art initiation than it was even for the universal art group. And of course it was faster for the people who had CD4 driven therapy. So this implies not just obviously clinical benefit, but also enormous public health benefit. And UCSF has now gone beyond that. And now they've shown in their, um, in their patients referred to the so-called rapid program, meaning they get a referral to their Ward 86 HIV clinic and they get them in as soon as possible. And look at their outcomes. This is 216 out of 225 patients get a viral load less than 200 one year after starting ART. And then looking several years out, still over 90% suppressed. This is very impressive because, as I'm sure you've heard, uh, this particular HIV clinic has a very challenging patient population. So let me mention a clinical trial. This is a clinical study called DIAMOND. Uh, Diamond was rapid start of darunavir, cobacystat, FDC, and TAF. 
It's actually a good choice for rapid start because of the fact that there you don't need any resistance testing and it covers hepatitis B. Uh, and the primary analysis was proportioned less than 50 at week 48. Now, it's not a randomized trial. It's a single-arm study. But nonetheless, you'll look at the outcomes uh, that patients who were in this, if you take a look at the observed, meaning those still on therapy, 96% had a viral load less than 50, 100% had a viral load less than 200. This is obviously feasible. Very few drug-related serious adverse events. Now, I actually should mention uh, there's also a study of dolutegravir-lamivudine that has a very similar study design. And in that study, of course, people would have to modify if they had hepatitis B or transmitted resistance. There were very, very few modifications in that particular study. So here is a, another group doing a different, a different part of the country in New Orleans, um, people who are linked to Crescent Care Health Center within 72 hours of diagnosis in a two-year period from 2016 to 2018. And they just gave them the therapy right there uh, and then gave them a 30-day starting supply. And the outcomes were really outstanding. You can see the, the population here is in the table, um, included two-thirds who were black uh, and uh, what proportion were women? Uh, to, um, looks like 20% were women. Or no, 16% were 16% were, were women and 3% uh, were trans females. So the outcomes were really terrific uh, here. Again, we have nearly, we have, actually, these numbers look almost as good as the hepatitis C numbers, uh, viral suppression um, in over 95% of the people in the study, which is really terrific. Uh, and no uh, discontinuations due to adverse events. So this is, uh, shows that it really is feasible. So what do our guidelines say? Uh, the Department of Health and Human Services says initiate ART as soon as, uh, immediately or as soon as possible after HIV diagnosis. They do have all of these caveats in there about the, the randomized trials are mostly based on resource limited settings and who knows whether that will apply here, but they also say it's probably worth doing. WHO says recommended when feasible, and the uh, ISUSA guidelines, which were updated last summer, said start out as soon as possible, including immediately after diagnosis if patient is ready. Now, of course, there are going to be exceptions. Uh, recently, we had someone newly diagnosed who had active tuberculosis, for example, and I don't think necessarily you need to start right away um, because the complexity of getting someone on TB therapy really is, is enough that starting ART at the exact same time uh, isn't a good idea. Uh, but many times it can be done right away as long as you have uh, the, the resources in place. So which art regimens are recommended for rapid art? Bictegravir FTC TAF is probably the one that's chosen most often because it, it comes as a single pill. It's very simple. Uh, and, you know, the chance of pharmacy errors or patient errors are really slim. Uh, almost identical outcomes would be achieved with dolotegravir plus TAF or TDF, FTC or 3TC. Really essentially the same products or very same similar products, only it's two pills rather than one. And then, as I mentioned before, uh, the, the darunavir, boosted darunavir plus tenofovir FTC. The regimens that are not recommended are fairly obvious. Uh, and in RTI-based regimens because of transmitted resistance, dolutegravir-lamivudine because of the fact that you don't know about hepatitis B status, you don't know about uh, baseline viral load, uh, you don't know about transmitted 184V. Uh, and then the other thing is anything requiring a back of ear because you don't have the HLA B5701 test. I'm old enough, though, to remember when we used to use a back of ear without HLA B5701 testing. 
And let me just tell you, it wasn't very fun <laughs> because patients would call with nonspecific side effects after starting a Bacavir. And you'd think, hmm, is this the beginning of H hypersensitivity reaction? Uh, not fun. Anyway. All right. So let's go to our outcomes case. You're providing care for an asymptomatic 30-year-old man, newly diagnosed with HIV, who's eager and ready to start same-day art. His physical exam is normal, and he has an uncomplicated medical history with no known comorbidities or, uh, um, uh, or concomitant medications. You order the following from the laboratory, a CBC, a comprehensive metabolic panel, hepatitis A, B, and C serologies, a CD4 cell count, a viral load, and a resistance genotype. And any of the following regimens would be recommended by current DHHS guidelines for same-day ART in this patient, the four lab results are available, except which one? You've got Bictegravir, FTC, TAF, Darunavir, Kobe, FTC, TAF, Dolotegravir, Abacavir, Lamivudine, Dolotegravir plus FTC, TAF, or Unsure. The right answer, uh, Dolotegravir, Abacavir, Lamivudine. Um, a few people said uh, Unsure, and someone said Bictegravir, FTC, TAF. Actually, that's the most common chosen regimen for same-day art. So let's go ahead and go over the, the answer is C, as mentioned, and you don't want to actually do uh, anything requiring a back of ear until the HLA B5701 results are back. That's very important. Um, so uh, we are not going to use a back of ear for same day ART. All right, moving right along, uh, let's talk now about long acting injectable therapy and putting it into practice. So here is a, um, a woman with controlled HIV acquiring about injectable art. She's a 46-year-old woman. She was diagnosed eight years ago, and she returns for appointments. She has suppressed viral loads and soon after starting art, first with Elvitegravir, Cobicistat, FTC, TDF, and now Bictegravir, FTC, TAF. Her CD4 cell count is normal. She had baseline resistance testing without mutations. Her hepatitis B status is immune post-vaccination. Her physical exam is unremarkable. She's slightly overweight. BMI is 31. She's well-controlled high blood pressure on hydrochlorothiazide. And prior to a hysterectomy for uterine fibroids, she used Depo-Provera as contraception for several years. Should we consider long-acting cab ropivirine in her? And the answer is we should consider it. She's a perfect candidate. Uh, the FDA now has approved it. It got approved in January, uh, about a year after we thought it was going to get approved. There was some manufacturing and distrib distribution issues, and it is uh, listed in the package insert. It's the com a complete regimen for HIV uh, switch in adults who are virologically suppressed on stable ART and have no history of treatment failure and no known suspected resistance to either cabotegravir or epivirine. It does, at the current moment, require a month of lead-in oral therapy, and then you start uh, the, the treatment with an injection of cabotegravir and ropivirine. There's a loading dose uh, that is given first, and then subsequent doses are a bit um, smaller in, in size. So the Department of Health and Human Services has recently weighed in on this treatment, and they said... Uh, can be used as an optimization strategy for people with HIV on oral ART with documented viral suppression for at least three months. And then it says, although the optimal duration is not defined, who have no baseline resistance to either medication, have no prior virologic failures, 
do not have hepatitis B, because remember, tenofovir is a hepatitis B drug, are not pregnant and not planning on becoming pregnant, and are not receiving medications with significant drug interactions to either cabotegravir or pivirine. So obviously, you wouldn't do this for someone who's getting rifampin for treatment of tuberculosis or a musculoskeletal infection. So we have approval of the uh, long-acting injectable cabropivirine based on the ATLAS and FLARE studies. The ATLAS study, as you recall, these are people who were virologically suppressed with no history of failure or resistance, switched to uh, long-acting cabropivirine every four weeks or continued ART. And you can see that that virologic non-response is extremely slow in both arms, this met non-inferiority. Um, so that's good news. And then the FLARE study was a little bit different. FLARE study took people who were treatment naive, uh, gave them all a Bacavir 3TC dolotegravir, and then at week 20, once virologically suppressed, they ended up uh, randomizing them to, to switch uh, to either um, cabotegravir or pivirine or to continue on their one pill a day dolotegravir Bacavir 3TC. And again, non-inferiority is met, although you will note that the virologic non-response is a little higher in the FLARE study than in the ATLAS study. And that's probably because this flare group did not have viral suppression for as long. Uh, the randomization occurred at week 20 if they were virally suppressed. Just keep that in mind when considering using this drug, this combination. It might be best for people who've been virologically suppressed for a long time. So one thing that we saw in ATLAS and flare, which we didn't see that often, we haven't seen that often in other studies, is treatment emergent resistance. And so in uh, this, uh, these two studies, um, there were six cases of virologic failure with resistance. Uh, and you'll notice that ropivirine resistance is uh, universal. Uh, ropivirine has a relatively low resistance barrier. And there were some patients who also had integrase resistance. Uh, interestingly enough, um, the, um, the, the, the patients who developed resistance, five out of six were enrolled in Russia, and all of them had a subtype A virus. We don't generally know our patient's subtype, although I guess you can get it off the genotype. Um, and it's a rare phenomenon. It only happened in six patients in these studies. These were large studies, but nonetheless, I think that is something we're going to have to keep in mind. It does turn out that when they did a multivariable analysis to find out the, the predictors of developing resistance in this long-acting injectable program and also included the, uh, the ATLAS 2M study, which has been given every two months, what they found was that um, having pre-existing ropivirine resistance mutations or RAMs, of course, we don't generally know that in our patients who've never switched, uh, never, never failed, um, having a high BMI, uh, having a subtype A virus, and uh, certain trough concentrations of ropivirine, if you put them all together, that was the predictors of of failure on this regimen, but we generally only know one of those things, which is the BMI, and just one of those things was not a predictor of, of failure. So did patients like it? Well, uh, I'll tell you, they really liked it. Now, there are two ways of looking at these data. Uh, you can see that, that really just a tiny fraction, 2% and 1% of the participants when asked if they preferred oral to inject, inject, oral or injections chose injections. Uh, chose only one or two percent chose oral. So that, that implies that this is overwhelmingly popular. But remember, it is a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy because the people going into this study knew that they had 50% chance of getting an injection. So they would only have done it if they if they wanted injections. What it does show us though 
is that among people who want injections, they really like this, okay? They really do. So let's now talk about the ATLAS 2M study. The ATLAS 2M study took people who were in the ATLAS study uh, and they were in the ATLAS study getting either uh, every four weeks of uh, injectable cabotegravir or they were getting standard of care art. And then they took people from outside the study who've never failed. Uh, they were just getting standard of care art and then enrolled them in this study and randomized them to get either every four-week cabotegravir opivirine or every eight-week cabotegravir opivirine. And the primary endpoint of the study was uh, virologic rebound. Actually, it was how, how, are, do you have people greater than 50 at week 48 by snapshot? And that is shown here. You can see that, again, uh, really outstanding results, 1.7 um, virologic non-response in the uh, Q8-week arm, um, 1% in the Q4 week arm. This meets non-inferiority very easily. If you look over at the, 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 the right side of the figure, um, there did appear to be some cases, again, of resistance that occurred in the course of this study. Um, there were actually, we now have updated 96-week data that was just presented at CRI, so I'll just mention it. There are, in fact, nine patients uh, in the eight-week arm and two still in the in the four-week arm who have resistance despite adherence to the program, uh, and that some of them developed, most of them developed propivirine resistance mutations. Some of them developed integrase resistance mutations. Um, most of the patients preferred the long-acting injectable to their previous oral therapy. And surprise, surprise, people on every eight-week injections preferred it to being on every four-week injections. I guess that's not really a surprise. Uh, doing, this, doing this six times a year versus 12, Six is going to be uh, more popular. So um, who should get long-acting ART? Well, clearly, uh, the highly adherent patients are the best candidates. And, you know, they, uh, they are the ones who were studied in, in these studies. There is an ongoing ACDG study called Latitude. And this is called, you know, or if you were a fan of the ACDG numbers, it's ACDG 5359. And what this basically is looking at is people who struggle with adherence, giving them financial incentives to get their viral load to undetectable. And at that point, then randomized a long-acting injectable or continued oral therapy. And the study is ongoing. Uh, I have to say it was one of those uh, really challenging studies to do during COVID. And COVID, of course, has now lasted a year. So the study was cruising along and then COVID hit. And so now we're having a little trouble completing it. But I'm looking forward to seeing whether we can broaden the population of people who can get this long-acting injectable therapy. So there were other long-acting injectables uh, and non-injectables in development. And I thought this uh, study was helpful because it actually shows preferences. You know, it asks people about a, a single pill taken once a week or two shots given in the clinic every other month, that's like Atlas 2M, or two small plastic implants in the forearm every six months, that would be more like uh, Islatravir. Uh, and the one that people seemed the most interested in in this survey of 263 patients, of art experience patients, was a single pill taken once per week. So let's uh, talk about these new medications. Um, why not? Eslatrovir is like a nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor, but you'll notice that it has an extra T, and that T stands for translocation, 
because it also inhibits translocation, not just nuclear, not just reverse transcriptase, has an extremely long half-life. It's very, very potent. And uh, since it's so potent, it actually uh, can be given in tiny, tiny doses and lasts a very, very long time. Um, speaking of lasting a long time, it looks like lenacapavir, uh, as given as a subcutaneous injection, um, not an intramuscular injection, because the long-acting treatments we just talked about have to be given intramuscularly by a healthcare provider. Here, we have exposures that conceivably a facilita would facilitate every six-month dosing subcutaneously, provided there's something that goes along with it. So now we're going to talk uh, again about this outcomes case. And this is actually, I want you uh, to take a look at this case uh, and give me a sense of whether you can answer the question correctly. Uh, it's a 31-year-old woman who was diagnosed after birth with, uh, with, with perinatally acquired HIV, and she's currently on boosted darunavir, FTC-TAF, and she wants to know, can she switch to long-acting injectable? But she has an extensive art history with known resistance to thymidine analogs and NDN RTIs, including efavirenz and ropivirine. Her CD4 cell count is 600. She's B immune, and she's taking an antihypertensive for hypertension. So according to DHHS, and which of the following is long-acting injectable therapy with cap and ropivirine recommended as an optimization strategy? A, poor adherence and prior virologic failure. B, HPV co-infection. C, no known resistance to either medications. D, only when the viral load is less than 2,000 or unsure. So I told you, there it is. I have no baseline resistance to either medications. The answer is C. All right. Involving investigational art options with two-drug therapy. It's actually not so investigational anymore. Uh, this is a 59-year-old man. And he this is our, our last case. Uh, he has, uh, he's, he's an older person, although it doesn't seem so old to me right now. Uh, diagnosed 12 years ago, um, and he had an MI and angioplasty and a stent placed. And his current CD4 is 1,000. His viral load is below detection. And now he's on a back, he was on a back of ear before. Actually, he's currently on a back of ear, and he previously was on TDFFTC and Adizanavir Rotonavir. Uh, longstanding, hard to control hypertension. He requires three agents, and his estimated GFR is 90. Uh, he's been on a statin for three years with his LDL of 90. Uh, and so um, what should we do with him? What what two drugs regimens is, is he a, a candidate for? Well, we could put him on uh, dolutegravir or piverine. This is an option for people who uh, can't take either uh, tenofovir uh, or, or can't take lamivudine or emetricitabine. Uh, can't take a back of your, obviously, uh, someone who's got cardiovascular disease. So this basically looked at people who never failed and then switched them to dolotegavir or piverine. And we now have very extensive follow-up. We know that this is extremely successful. Uh, very little difference between continuing the baseline ART or going on dolotegavir or piverine. Ultimately, everyone switched to dolotegavir or piverine and now uh, 90 plus percent are still below detection. Um, so so um, the thing about dolotegavir ropivirine is that, remember, it contains ropivirine. And as I've mentioned before, ropivirine is a very uh, uh, low resistance barrier medication. And so when people have virologic failure, uh, then uh, they really shouldn't, shouldn't um, 
they they shouldn't they they are very high likelihood of getting resistance, and that's shown in the sword study. There's just a few cases of virologic failure, but um, three out of ten did have resistance. None of them had integrase resistance, which is fortunate. So there is a a, a kind of real world clinical experience with real pivirine uh, and with um, dolutegravir, and it's shown here. Uh, it looks like this is the one of those opera cohort studies and uh, nearly a thousand, actually 880 patients, debatable whether that's nearly a thousand, but it's still a lot. And, and people who switched to this regimen and it looks like it was successful, 88% still on the drug at 12 months, only 1.5% with virologic failure. Uh, and then, you know, most of those subsequently are virologically suppressed also. So it's it's a it's a, an effective option. I have to say it's a bit of a niche option. It seems to be something we use more commonly in uh, in uh, people who are uh, have renal disease because neither dolutegravir or opiferine is cleared by the kidneys. So we also have data on two drug therapy with um, uh, as initial therapy dolutegravir and lamivudine, uh, and we know from the Gemini studies now extensive follow up that this is not inferior. Uh, there was. You know, if we take a look at the dolutegravir lamivudine versus dolutegravir plus TDF-FTC difference, we only see a difference in the primary endpoint really in this group who has a CD4 cell count less than 200. But those those uh, failures in dolutegravir lamivudine weren't really virologic failures. With res- they certainly weren't virologic failures with resistance. They were mostly things like you know lost to follow up or didn't come in for their visit or something like that. Overall, if you look at the the analysis that, that that takes away all of those sort of uh, non-virologic reasons for failure, then you end up with very good responses in both in both this low, low and high viral loads and low and high CD4. Um, we'll say that this study, I didn't mention this and I should have mentioned it, had a ceiling viral load of 500,000. Uh, so I think that, that you know, I still would probably use, uh, I, I think generally would use triple therapy for people who are starting therapy without you having the viral load back, or if you know it's it's very high. And, and I think that there's enough, you know, we have enough good options for triple therapy that why start someone on dual therapy if their CD4 cell count is low? Uh, start them on triple therapy. If later you want to switch them to dual therapy, you can. And we know you can because of the Tango study. The Tango study, remember, Gemini is the twins. That's two-drug therapy. And Tango, it takes two to Tango. So we have these names for these studies, and that's how you remember what they're all about. And this one is uh, basically looking at people who've never failed therapy, randomizing them to stay on their current TAF-based regimen or switch to dolutegravir lamivudine. And this uh, showed very, very low rates of viral rebound uh, clearly, the two-drug therapy of dolutegravir lamivudine was not inferior to continue with three-drug regimen. And there did appear to be some metabolic benefits of this switch. It wasn't so much the dropping of the TAF. It was more the um, fact that some of the people, actually a lot of the baseline treatments in this study were L-vitegravir, cobicistat, FTC, TAF. And so a lot of the patients were on a booster And when you get rid of the booster, you have significant reductions in the cholesterol, the LDL, the triglycerides, all of those lipids. Boosters actually make lipids worse, and dropping boosters 
not only uh, makes the lipids better, but also you get a, get away from the problems with uh, drug interactions. So I think when you can get people off of boosters, it always makes sense to do so. So, uh, you know, it, it also showed some other benefits. Again, remember, there were a lot of people on boosters at baseline, and there was overall a uh, statistically significant favorable switch in this um, composite parameter of, of, uh, of um, hemoglobin A1C, fasting glucose changes, uh, et cetera. I, I'm sorry, in, insulin, insulin. Uh, and, you know, and this is, again, gets at the metabolic effects of boosters because you're dropping the booster. Now, I think the gajillion dollar question, if that's a uh, appropriate word, is whether switching to a regimen from a TAF regimen to dolotegravir-lamivudine would lead to weight loss. And uh, the answer to that question is not in tango. It did not. Uh, so you'll see um, there's really minimal changes in weight uh, between the treatment arms. So, and it's not clear whether this is because, because the, uh, the, the TAF is not causing weight gain. It's really the absence of TDF that causes weight gain with TAF or whether it's once you get weight gain secondary to TAF, it's very hard to lose it or whether we still don't really understand weight changes in ART. And I would hope that there'll be some questions about weight changes with ART in the question and answer section that's coming up momentarily because I'm almost on my last slide. Uh, but I, I don't know uh, whether we're going to get into that because it is controversial. All I know is that in the Tango study, people switching from a TAF-based regimen to dolotegravir-lamivudine really did not have much in the way of weight changes. So uh, we now have actually this two-drug regimen listed as an option for first-line treatment. Dolotegravir-lamivudine is the first of the two drug options listed for uh, treatment, and it has some caveats, and the caveats are viral load greater than 500,000, hepatitis B co-infection, or if you start before you have the results of genotype or hep B back. Great. Thank you very much to Dr. Sachs, and thanks to our listeners for joining in. As a reminder, to view the full educational program, Contemporary Management of HIV 2021 on the Clinical Care Options website, click on the link in the show notes for this episode. And please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thank you.